Lord, we've said, sung, that we will not fear what the world around us says. And we pray that we may find renewed confidence in your word uh, to be the people in whom Christ lives, such that the world need hold no fear for us, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Do please sit and find your way once again, please, to Galatians, page 1169. In the name of His Holiness, Benedict XVI, gloriously reigning, having invoked the Most Holy Trinity, the tribunal has pronounced the following sentence. That's how sentence was handed down upon Paolo Gabriele, who was convicted this week of stealing confidential papers from among those that uh, came past him as the Pope's butler. His defense was that he did do it, but that he didn't see it as stealing. Rather, he was concerned about corruption in the church. And he did it, quote, out of love for the church. Well, why did you do what you did this week? Who did you do it for? It's a question that's lurking in our reading today. A reading that uh, many of us may have as one of our favorite bits But it's actually quite complicated what Paul is saying. Following his stream of thought through what he says is quite complicated, and it's not really enough just to pull out a plum from the middle of it or to think that what we've got is the gist. You may remember that Paul and his gospel, what he preaches, are under attack. And he has had to point out that even Peter, St. Peter, who ought to have known better, faltered in his support for a a gospel, a, a proclamation of God's goodness that would go beyond Jews to the Gentiles of the world. And we ended last week with verse 16. By observing the law, no one will be justified. Just to set the scene then, you cannot be put right with God as an individual or as a people by focusing on Jewish law. If you focus on that, precisely because that is your focus, you forget what the law was for to lead you to be a people for the rest of the world. And now Paul is paying attention to a specific attack that's being made against him. Someone out there is saying, look, you want to say that you are put right with God by Jesus... And that, therefore, means you can eat with Gentiles. But the law, look at it, Paul says, you can't eat with Gentiles. So all your precious Jesus is doing is ending up promoting sin. Absolutely not, comes the reply. I tore down the whole business of law as obligation. Law as uh, putting you right with God. Laura's doing what you had to do because you just had to do it. And if I now rebuild it, including the laws about who I eat with, then I break the very new law that Jesus has brought in. He said we can eat with anybody. If I go back on that, 
I'm breaking his law. What they are not getting is this. From way back, the people of God have had a calling laid upon them to make God's mercy known to the world. Now, faith in Jesus has replaced Jewishness as the one criterion for belonging to the people of God. Anyone now can approach God by faith. The law, the details of the law, they were always there to help God's people in the business of daily life and sin and its management while they pressed on with their fundamental job. But sin proved stronger than the law. Sin took advantage of the law, and they got obsessed with the law itself, just so as to prevent them from fulfilling their calling. Paul is appalled at this slur, a slur that ends up being against Jesus himself. Jesus is promoting sin. And in these two verses, at 19 and 20, he works to clear his name. We, uh, we move on to those verses with all these little piled up phrases. Some of them you'll be very familiar with. They're very, they're very memorable. But we might be hard put to say exactly what they do mean. Well, one thing I want us to get straight, just as a structure, is that Paul was a Pharisee. It meant he was well-learned, well-schooled in the Old Testament. And he would have been very familiar with the way that, for example, the Psalms, it's not only in the Psalms, it's all over the place, but say the Psalms uh, repeat things to say the same thing in two ways. He leads me beside still waters, he leads me in paths of righteousness, Psalm 23. Same thing, different ways of saying it. And so when we come to these two verses, they're not saying different things, they're saying the same things, same thing, but from a slightly different perspective. So first of all, at 19, though we have to look forward even there. Through the law, I died to the law. What's that mean? Well, we know from the next verse that his own death and Christ's death are woven together. Christ was sentenced under the law of Israel. So what happened to him was, quote, through the law. It wasn't outside it. It was legitimate. But... Christ's death exhausted the power of the law. A death has to exhaust the power of any law because there's nothing you can do by way of penalty to a dead body. Jesus lived the life of law. Uniquely, he lived it obediently. And he died a death under the law. So law had done all it could in Jesus. And in verse 19, Paul is saying that in the same process, I died to the law. I was in that crucifixion with Jesus. I died to the law, but it was through the law. I'm not arguing that I've escaped the law. Just that the law itself has done its worst. It's been exhausted. It has no more to say, to do. In order, he says, that I can live to God. You see, there was an idolatry about the law when it was used wrongly by sinful people. Freed from that idolatry of how the law works, he's free to live before God. Now, that life is going to be lived in, a, in the next verse before the Son of God, 
few verses on, just into chapter 3, the Spirit of God appears. The whole majesty of the Trinity is in this. To live before God, truly to live the life of God before God. We can live free from law as burden. But let's go on. He said all that in verse 19 as a matter of doctrine. But then in verse 20, what we see is not so much doctrine, it's the same kind of thing, but we see this extraordinary personal devotion, his urgent desire to identify with Jesus. Now, the first thing I just want to notice is that in this this, um, whole section, notice that Jesus is called Christ. And we always have to beware reading that as though it's a surname. If you read those verses and replace that word, Christ, with Messiah, which is what it means, they both mean the word, they both mean anointed. It was a a phrase that looked forward from the Old Testament of God's chosen person as representative. Then you start to catch the corporate flavor of it all. Just in one of our songs, uh, the familiar line, I will sing of your love forever, got switched partway through to we will sing of your love forever. It's a tiny illustration of moving from the individual to the corporate. But this Messiah of Israel is the one whom St. Paul is talking about. I have been crucified with Messiah. It is no longer I who live, but Messiah who lives in me. Now, of course, Paul wasn't crucified physically with Jesus. What he means is that this is Israel's Messiah, the one who in himself sums up the people as their head. If he, the Messiah, is crucified, then all his people are crucified with him. The law has done its final, weirdest, but most wonderful work. It has guided the people to their Messiah, if they will but open their eyes and see. And in him, it has opened the door to a life of faith. So that my deepest identity is now not me, but the Christ who is risen, still as the Messiah of Israel, so that I am in him and he is in me. And the day-to-day business of living, the life I now live in the flesh, as Paul puts it, isn't any kind of second-rate life, way behind some sort of exalted life in the Spirit. Not at all. Every day I live my normal life, but I live it by faith in the Son of God, he says. The Son of God who loved me. It is Messiah now who lives in me, not the law. And Messiah is the energy who drives my life. Just catch Paul's passion there. He stands amazed at the God who loved him, the Messiah who was prepared to take up residence in him by his Spirit, as we'll learn later. And if that's his amazement, then it's not surprising in verse 21, he ends with a warning. Out of this deep connectedness to Jesus... He writes that if you go back to the law, if standing right with God is by the law, 
then all that connectedness is false. Because Christ died to no purpose. It's not Paul who is nullifying grace, setting grace aside. It is those who can gaze on the cross and then return to a life of works under the Jewish law. Well, that's what he's saying. And as ever, we face the question, what on earth do we do with it? You may know those of Jewish background, but there are not that many in Norwich. As I said last week, I think we have to be careful not simply to assume that we can use this kind of understanding straight from Galatians to reach the world around us. Yes, it's true that if you ask them, many people will say that God should let them into heaven because they're good. But I think, like Peter is discovering, that we heard earlier, that even that's now fading. We're deceived if we think that those who want to get into heaven because they're good are living a life equivalent to the Jewish law, where there was such a strong sense of identity. We are those who are God's people and undertake this law. That, that's not part of what goes on around us. There are those who are religious, perhaps some people who go to church on Sundays and do have that kind of goodness religion. But mostly people are just disinterested. And if you really push them, they might say, well, I don't really believe in God, but if there is one, then he ought to take account of my goodness. So this may be a passage that we use with religious people, and there's, but there's fewer of those in each generation. And it is incredibly helpful as many of us who follow Jesus look back to how things might have been if we hadn't understood what Jesus was up to. But for me, at least, if I have to take this into my Monday to Saturday, the big message of this passage is what it tells me about who the God is that I can answer about when there, an inquiry may come. Let me do a little plug, incidentally, at this point. Next Sunday evening, we'll have a visiting preacher at our evening service, Joel Callow. He's the local leader of Friends International uh, and uh, is here most Friday evenings for World Cafe and does other things during the week with international students who come to us from all over the world and if we can reach them with the gospel then they take the gospel back to that part of the world. He's coming and will be picking up this theme of what do we do in the world faced with just huge scale disinterest around us. How do we take mission to that kind of world? So book that in for next Sunday evening if that's appropriate. But this passage can, worked properly, form part of the story I tell people about Jesus. Even if they're not Jewish, even if they're not religious, or particularly convinced that God should like them because of their goodness. And so let me take some steps towards that. Let's go to the really famous bit, I think, verse 20. I fear I sometimes hear it used in ways that I don't think Paul ever meant. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the bit that gets quoted. And sometimes it means this. As a Christian, I don't really matter anymore. All that matters is that I am, I am as a mere pipe 
through which Christ does things. It's a way of putting ourselves down or sounding humble. And it may be we're feeling humble. Maybe we want to sound humble. It's not a bad thing. But we reach for this. But it's not about that at all. It's even used in the kind of parody that I've heard in pulpits like this. Do you feel that your life is like a car? And you've invited Jesus into the car of your life. But you've never invited him to be in the driving seat of your life. Why don't you do that now? That doesn't sound like a bad thing to do. But it strikes me that I am thereby being asked to become a passenger in my own life. And I see no biblical idea behind that at all. That not about me, all about Jesus, must in large measure, when we use it carelessly, account for why Christians are seen as wimps, those who don't take charge of their lives. And that's not what it means to say, I no longer live. Let's go on with the verse. And the life I now live, I live by faith. The life who lives? The life I live. I do live, after all. Whoopee. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, we go on again. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not just an accidental description that Paul is adding. It is of the essence of this Son of God that he should be the one who loved and gave himself. So if I live by faith in him and he lives in me, then my life is turned round to become one of love and self-giving. Not to be good, to meet a law, that's going back and ignoring what he's done, but because he has set within me his own life. The life I live, I really do live. I am not a passenger. And so if I say I no longer live, then it's not a loss of personality that's being described, but more personality than ever. God forbid we should ever just become pipes. I fully live, but the life I fully live is not the old one, but me fully committed to serve the purpose of God that was there from the beginning. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are told their calling is to give themselves for the world. I would love to have been there the day that someone said to Joshua, you're a wimp. You just can't imagine Joshua in full seriousness saying, well, it's not me, it's just Jesus really. Woe betide us. If we can tell the gospel, Jesus died for you on the cross, and then have to speak of service as some kind of bolt-on that follows the gospel. I never like those approaches to Christian basics that tell you what they think is the good news, and then they kind of uh, have a bit of a break, and then there's some bad news, like you have to read your Bible, and you have to pray, and you have to have a life of service, and you have to give. That means you haven't told the Bible properly, the Bible story properly in the first place, the gospel story. We tell the story of Jesus as it happened 2,000 years ago. Not as, as it could have happened 200 years ago or two years ago, cut off from its roots. Rather, we tell the story of Jesus as one who gave his life because God always wanted a people who would display his character of self-giving to the world. And he anointed a man, promised an anointed man. Then he anointed a man who would do what the people never got on with. Tell it like that. 
and service, self-giving, is no longer a bolt-on that has to be explained after the gospel, but something that's at the heart of the gospel from the beginning. Why are you a believer if you are? Because the stream of God's purpose is to give himself, and you want to swim in that stream. He gave himself for you, but there is no way that you can stand on a little island in that stream and say, thank you very much, mine. You have to swim in that stream, be immediately swept into the stream, then to give yourself. You can't just make it a a neutral moment any more than Paul can say, I died to the law without immediately adding, I live to God. One of our great dangers is that we treat the cross as a transaction. This was the problem. Cross sorted it, end of. And even good evangelical people can do that. Instead of which, if we read this passage in Galatians, we see how God's character penetrates to the very core of the disciple's being. The cross is not a transaction we understand and then move on from. It is an endless source to which we come back again and again to enter into what it means to give ourselves, because that's God's character. And so what about you? I don't intend to preach a mushy, sentimental approach to the cross. And I certainly don't intend to preach a cross that's become a problem of sin sorted transaction. Rather, I want us to understand from this story of law and love. A story, by the way, that we won't tell in all its Jewish details to those around us. I want us to understand from it simply a story of a God who looks for a people and then finds them in one man, a man who gives himself so that you and I can, by his Spirit, live out God's character of giving ourselves. Not here only, not only in these walls, but Monday to Saturday, among all those whom God has appointed to hear his good news in our mouths. There are very, very many simply disinterested people. Uh, And we may know very many of them ourselves. The old days are fading when you could rely on a religious background to guide you into explaining how the cross worked and all of that. But I don't believe that Jesus has actually lost his own attractive power. We do still have that capacity to form relationships, not to go go in cold, but to form relationships out of which inquiry about Jesus will seem normal. And then we get to tell a story of what God is like, not using the details of the Jewish law, but looking at something like what we've been studying and say, actually what that is is the story of a people that didn't do or didn't offer to the world the very character of God. And here in the story of Jesus is someone who did because it was promised from all time. That's what I'm inviting you, oh my friend, into. 
is not to lose your personality by saying it is no longer I live, but to have your personality simply transformed so that you live more than ever you lived before, so that you know what the fullness of life is that powering its way through you. Yes, it's a life of self-giving. Yes, it's a life of giving of ourselves. But just as it was for Joshua, that doesn't mean being wimpy. It means being courageous and confident and taking charge of your own life. But with this huge dynamic, Jesus is not asking to be the driving seat in your car. He wants to be the petrol that makes your engine go. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us if we've been those who look at uh, some of these verses and find in them a cover for our own anxiety, for our own lack of confidence. Let us recognize the power of Jesus Christ in his spirit driving through these verses. And make us into the confident, courageous people that we see when we look at someone like a Joshua. Who was so convinced of his new life because of the way that you had already been at work in his life. That he would undertake anything for such a God. So let it be for us that we will undertake anything Guide us to the relationships that will be fruitful for your gospel and make us wise in our use of words, careful in how we read your scripture. Turn us into those who are properly equipped from your word to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.